Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Is anxiety all in your head? The New York-based functional medicine psychiatrist Dr. Ellen Vora has a whole new approach to understanding and managing our moods. It's the subject of her new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, and of her conversation with David Malone, which we recorded earlier this year. Enjoy. You said something really interesting. In fact, the introduction to your book is the best introduction to a book that I've read in about a year. It is just every single word counts, and you managed to sum up everything that I need to know in the introduction. So I highly recommend the introduction. <laughs> and on page three, you said, I like this. It says, anxiety is not what is wrong with you. It's your body and mind fiercely alerting you to the fact that something else is wrong. And that's really it, isn't it? That's the, the message of the book, that this is a message to you, anxiety. It's not what's wrong with you. When did you come to that thought? That's a long time coming. And I'll say, just playing off of the idea that every word counts, I think this was born out of a a kind of what ended up being a fortunate mistake, which was that I was some 20,000 words over my word count maximum. And I I took a very long train ride and had to ruthlessly go back through my manuscript and cut any possible fat from it. And I went through that process. It was brutal. And Then I got to the end and I did realize that my entire reference section, which is like 30 pages long, had been duplicated. And so it turns out I I didn't actually need to cut a single word. I was fine on word count. Well, I think it was well worth it because the the book is so easy to read. And there's these fashion at the moment, as someone who reads them a lot, for an enormously long books. And after a while, you do start to think, you know, there was 80 pages of that, which was just repetition. And there isn't any in your book. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it ended up being for the best, I think, that I had to do that process. And I, it's, it's not to my credit. I really do like repetition. I love to <laughs> summarize. <laughs> but I, I got in trouble with my editor with every summary statement. She said, the readers already get this. Yeah, you don't need to. Yeah, your um, book is very clear. It sort of brims over with a tone that is common sense. It, the, the book comes across as very common sense, as, as saying, look, just have a quick think about this. And you'll, isn't it like this? And, and you read it and you go, yeah, yeah, you're right. It is like that. <laughs> exactly my intention. And so I can answer your original question as well, Please. if you like. <laughs> so yeah, why not? Basically, I think that, I mean, here's the thing is throughout my entire process, my journey through medical school and psychiatry residency, what started to dawn on me was that the way we approach health is we're stuck in the crowning achievement of Western medicine, which was identifying infectious diseases and being able to treat them with antibiotics. And that was really what set us apart from, you know, we step in as healers, we hold space, supportive care. That's when we really started to be able to cure people. And we continue to try to get back to that, those glory days. And you see the evidence of this in mental health. We're trying desperately to do that. Say, well, here's a constellation of symptoms. Those symptoms equal the diagnosis of anxiety And therefore, this implies a treatment of an SSRI medication. And for some people, that formula works well. And it really creates the bridge for them to be able to feel well in their lives, not suffer, achieve a state of fulfillment. And then for millions of people, it's actually not an adequate solution. And I started to wonder if 
we were kind of missing the point when we think anxiety is the end of the inquiry, that that's the answer. It would be the answer if it truly implied a treatment that was a cure. But I think anxiety is really just a communication from the body. It's a collection of symptoms. And the root cause, the actual cause of it, is variable. And it's a little bit different for all of us. And so I think that the constellation of symptoms that equals anxiety is just the beginning of the conversation. And that's when we roll up our sleeves and start to understand what's at the root of this person's anxiety. Yes, because you mentioned that the, the symptoms and a, a lot of what you point out is that modern Western medicine is very keen to treat the symptoms. Yeah. It would be like treating a really serious viral infection by saying, well, this person's had his temperature. So if we can get the temperature to go away, then we're done. <laughs> You'd be surprised, but that's actually the level of insight that happens sometimes in the conventional <laughs> medical setting. And the fever, as if that, that was the pathology, the fever is actually the body's attempt at correcting the underlying problem. And the same goes with anxiety. A lot of what we think of as, well, these symptoms are uncomfortable and I don't want to be feeling them. And the world calls these symptoms mental illness. So let's do away with them. Let's eradicate these symptoms. Often these symptoms are a really vital communication from within. And sometimes when we suppress them, even when we medicate them away, certainly when we pathologize them, what we're doing is we're kind of putting a sticker over the check engine light. Like this was alerting us to the fact that something else is wrong and it, it warrants our attention. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. If you did just every time a warning light came on, just, just put a sticky thing over that so, so I'm not seeing it anymore. And then carry on driving. But Problem solved. You, you also make the, the clear distinction between two kinds of anxiety you know, you, you, so, and, and two kinds of stress. Tell us what you, about the difference, because in your way of dealing with this, the only thing they have in common is the word, really. So the way I was trained was to rely on the Bible of mental health, which is called the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And it taught me to classify anxiety in terms of whether it was generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder, with or without agoraphobia, OCD, so on and so forth. And the idea always with nomenclature is to steer management, is to tell us, well, if it is this, therefore the treatment is medication, psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, whatever the case may be. And it wasn't steering my treatment meaningfully. Those were never my first line treatments anyway. And I started to observe that if I divide anxiety into two main categories, what I call false anxiety and true anxiety, then we're cooking with gas. Then that's a classification system that has meaningful implications for what do we do next. And with false anxiety, which is what I think of as avoidable anxiety, it's anxiety with a physical basis where it's not you know, all in our head. It's not just from the neck up not just the chemical imbalance in our brain. If anything, those chemical imbalances are sometimes a downstream effect of a state of imbalance that's happening somewhere else in the physical body. And this kind of anxiety, it's, you know, I don't call it false to invalidate the very real suffering. It's, you know, I lived in a state of false depression for nearly a decade. That was life altering symptoms. But in my case, it turned out to be related to things like eating gluten and being on the birth control pill. And so there was a straightforward path out. And that's what I mean by calling it false. It has a physical basis and there's a straightforward path out. True anxiety, on the other hand, is purposeful anxiety. It's not something that we should be pathologizing. 
not something that we should be medicating away. It's not something that we could go gluten-free and decaf coffee our way out of. <laughs> it's an inner compass here to communicate, slow down, pay attention. There's something not right in our personal lives, in our communities, in the world at large. And there's usually a call to action baked into it. And so it's asking us to translate that feeling of anxiety into some kind of purposeful action. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing about the book is it's, it's surprising, or it's surprising to me anyway, surprisingly positive. Because, you know, if, I, I imagine when you went to your publisher said, guess what, I want to write a book about anxiety. <laughs> and yet it's not an anxious book. It's a very hopeful book and it's a very positive book. Because on the one hand, with the, what you call the false anxiety, as you say, it's something out of whack in your body that's being caused by something in your environment. Therefore, there's at least the chance that you can fix it. So that's, that's rather positive. And, and then the true anxiety, which we'll talk more about later, I suppose, you paint it as this is your moral compass tapping you on the shoulder saying, you know what, you're on the wrong path. Something's not right. And you, some, some part of you knows that. And, and again, there's something very positive in it, which I found surprising because, I, I, you know, they said, I've got a book for you to read, uh, The Anatomy of Anxiety. I didn't go, yay. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time I got 100 pages in, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm rather enjoying this. I, I have another cup of tea and finish it off, <laughs> which is pretty good for a book on anxiety. So look, let's talk about false anxiety, because as you say, you're not saying, look, it's false. You're not really in pain. You're very clear. Yes, all of, all of the suffering you're feeling is real, but we can figure out what's causing it. Yeah, and I think it was really important to me to write a book that didn't leave people feeling more anxious. You know, <laughs> I'm not a historian. I am a psychiatrist. I am in the business of relieving human suffering. And, you know, it's at this point second nature for me to co-regulate with people, how I use my voice, how I use my words. I want to help lift people up. And then I am inherently optimistic about mental health. I think that the situation right now is grim. It was already bad. It's gotten precipitously worse through the pandemic, through the events geopolitically these days. We are really struggling. But I personally went through a journey of being in a lot of false moods and healing that. And now I am exactly the happy, optimistic person that I in the past looked at it and thought, how irritating and oblivious must that person be, you know, that they, that they feel optimistic. But I had the firsthand felt experience of going from feeling anxious and feeling depressed to feeling well. And I, in a, in a kind of, it's almost like a compulsion. I want other people to at least know that this path is available to them. Yeah. Um, so false anxiety, here's the thing. We evolved on you know, the proverbial savanna of human evolution under a very different set of circumstances. And I'll be the first to say, I don't want to be back there. Like I enjoy hot showers. I enjoy a really comfortable mattress. But I do think that we just have to be savvy about the fact that our genes evolved to expect a certain set of circumstances. And we, we have an internal clock that cues our bodily rhythms, it cues our ability to sleep, it cues our ability to wake up and have energy and to feel motivated. And all of that is related to our external environmental cues. And our brain, our immune system rely on certain raw materials. And these things were easier to come by. And we sort of had the right cues on the savanna. 
And now everything is helter-skelter in modern life. So we just want a little bit of knowledge so that we can be strategic. And when it's comfortable and available, to approximate some of those conditions. And so that's the basis of false anxiety is to understand how modern life with our artificial light after sunset, with our nutritionally bankrupt processed foods, with our technology, with our inflammatory diets and the broad assault on our, the health of our digestive tract, that all of these things impact our mental health and that we can make little adjustments to our diet and lifestyle to approximate evolutionary conditions and help us feel better. And, and as you say, there's a very solid scientific basis for this, because as you say, I forget how many neurons there are in the gut, but it's a very large number. I mean, it's, it's as many neurons as the average dog has in its head. So there's a lot of things, and they're neurons too. They're not nerve cells. I asked, I asked a, a physiologist about this. I said, surely you're just meaning nerve cells. And he told me off and said, no. I said neurons, and I'm a professor, and I meant neurons. So there's a whole lot of thinking going on down there. And as you say, most of the communication is up from your guts to your head. And it's, it's as you say in the book, the mistake is to think, I'm feeling anxious. I've got, you know, my mind is, is uncomfortable and this is making my body uncomfortable. You're saying, no, 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 it's the other way around. Your body is not working well. And that's the thing that's making your mind uncomfortable. Or more accurately, it's both. But it is about 80% afferent, so communication from the gut up to the brain, and only about 20% top-down. But culturally right now, the conversation hinges on the top-down communication. That's the part we get. We think, I'm anxious for this exam that I'm going to take tomorrow, and therefore I have diarrhea. And that's valid. That's also true. You know, We evolved to evacuate our bowels when we're about to go into uh, an acute stress response, and that makes sense. We're lighter. We're able to run faster and think more clearly. But the part we're missing in the public conversation is that there is also communication from the gut up to the brain, primarily along the vagus nerve, really important cranial nerve. And basically, it's giving a state of affairs report up to the brain all the time. And if our digestive tract is funky, which for many of us in modern life, it is, we take antibiotics, we drink chlorinated tap water, we live under conditions of chronic stress, we eat processed foods. And so our digestive tract is really compromised. We have an unhealthy gut lining. We have a decimated gut flora. And so the vagus nerve is telling the brain a signal of things are not okay down here. Feel uneasy, rest, make different choices so that we can feel better. And so we just need to start appreciating that it's not always top down. And sometimes it's a bottom-up communication. And I think that the physical basis for feeling unwell it's an easier entry point. Like if it's all about the top down, well, that's seven years of psychotherapy on the, on the couch, you know, get started. But when it comes to a physical basis for feeling unwell and, and struggling with mental health, that's something we can usually address in a matter of weeks or months. And it's, it's a nice straightforward path to relieving a lot of unnecessary suffering. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favorite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there. 
I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm. Now, you do spend a lot, quite a lot of very practical time in the book, so detailing the things which you say, look, these are parts of modern life, which we may like for other reasons, but here's the short list of things which I think are probably playing havoc with your, your anxiety, with your body. Um, and it, it's interesting because you, you, we talked about the gut and there are a whole list of things which you say you should try and avoid these and other things where you say you may have been told to avoid these because, you know, it's, there's, there's some popular diet and it's got nothing to do with it. So <laughs> I, can't, I, I lost track of the number of industries that you probably have annoyed. I, I think you <laughs> must get very few Christmas cards. <laughs> I might have a target on my back. Yeah, I worry sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's important to me to operate with integrity. And it probably means I get invited onto fewer morning shows. But, um, you know, we are... We are our media, our government is very heavily intertwined with certain very powerful industries that um, are not necessarily inherently evil, but sometimes we just need to make very conscious choices in how we navigate their products. And that's true with media. I think it's true with food and the wine and spirits industry and pharmaceuticals. And um, I think, yeah, I have annoyed a lot of industries, unfortunately. And you also make quite a lot about sleep. Yeah. You feel that there's, I mean, and, but you also mentioned about the practical steps that people should take, which I phoned my children this morning and said, right, <clears throat> here's the things you've got to do. You can't have your mobile phone by your bedside. <laughs> Tell yeah. us about that, because I've just told all my children. So okay, I, I need some backup because they weren't happy. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's back that up. And then I want to circle back also to diet because we just touched on it briefly and there's a lot to be said there. Um, so I think that with the phone, I really like the message of use your phone. Don't let it use you. Or someone said it really well lately, the way the mind is a, a really good servant and a terrible master. I think the same can be said of the phone. And so when we are just defaulting to the habits that we've been swooped into, we just have to recognize we're living in the attention economy, which is to say our attention is the commodity that's being competed for these days. And it's by very smart companies. They've done their homework. They know their neuroscience. They know their behavioral psychology. They understand that if there's no natural stopping point, we will scroll endlessly. We will never say to ourselves, look at that. I got to the end of TikTok. Now let me go to bed at a wholesome hour. And they know that if they prey on our fear response, or instill uncertainty, doubt, controversy, we're going to stay glued, we'll rubber neck, we will give over an increasingly large share of our attention, they will get more clicks and more ad revenue, but our mental health is the collateral damage. So we just have to make conscious choices as we navigate the information landscape. And it's easier said than done. We can think about who gets to tell us what what and when and how often, and start to maybe batch our news check-ins. So it's not just a 24 hour a day 
IV drip of the 24-hour news cycle. And I think that the phone out of the bedroom at night is one of the easiest set it and forget it steps to limiting the way the phone can impact our mental health. When we keep our phone on our bedside table or like clutched to our chest while we sleep, it's the last thing we look at before bed. It sends a shot of blue spectrum light into our eyes, telling our superchiasmatic nucleus or that internal clock in our brain, good morning, the sun is rising, which is not such a bad thing at seven in the morning. It is not a great thing in the middle of the night. And so it's confusing our circadian rhythm and suppressing our melatonin, making it hard to sleep. And it also, you know, our at least in the United States right now, we have a national pastime of doom scrolling. And what does doom scrolling mean? I, I read this, I thought, I'm obviously out of touch. What is doom scrolling? Well, if you think about when we're in these moments where there's really heavy duty things going on on the global landscape, we are, it, it's a natural part of the human stress response. We want to be informed. We want to be aware so that we can anticipate potential negative consequences so we can be prepared. And Part of how we do that these days is endlessly scrolling on social media. And of course, the algorithms are very good at knowing where we dwell, where our eyes spend more time. It gives us more of that. And so it's this reinforcing loop where when we dwell on the things that are really heavy and disconcerting, it will give us more of that. And we stay glued because it keeps putting us in this ginned up stress response. And we just think, I need more. I need more. I need to stay even more informed. This is even worse than I thought. And I'm not here to say things are honky-dory in the world. They certainly are not. Um, but I think we want to stay informed and be a part of the conversation in the daytime hours. And right before bed, I really like the line from Brittany Packnett Cunningham. She says, we need rested warriors. It's not to say go live under a rock, to say for us to surrender and to sleep, we need to feel safe. And scrolling on our phone is not a good recipe for that. So keeping the phone out of the bedroom is protective of our sleep quality, our circadian rhythm, and it makes our bedroom a little bit more of a sanctuary. And I think that if you can pilot it and just set up your charger somewhere else in your home, you can set up your settings so that if, you know, if a call from a favorite or a double call in the event of an emergency, you'll still hear it, but it's not in arm's reach where you're going to reach for it all through the night. And it's a really good way to protect your sleep. And if you really hate it, you can go back to keeping your phone clutched to your chest, but <laughs> Oftentimes it seems difficult to do. And then when you do it, you don't look back. Let's go back to food then. Let's, let's yeah. go back to that because you spend a lot of time talking about it. Tell us the things which you talk with your patients most about. So I basically end up taking the opposite stance of wherever my patient is currently at, if I'm being <laughs> honest with myself. And that's a big part of what I wanted to convey in my chapter about food. The central thesis here is what we eat matters to our mental health. Um, for some people, that's kind of just an obvious given. For others, it's like an irritating idea of the toxic wellness world. And it's like, I'll eat whatever I want. But I think that we just need to recognize the brain is a physical piece of flesh, like any other organ in the body. It requires certain raw materials to function. And we get those raw materials, those vitamins and minerals from the food we eat. And so every bite we take, that's our opportunity to play at this scavenger hunt of whether we're checking those boxes. And it's hard to do under the best of circumstances and increasingly difficult when we're eating nutritionally bankrupt processed foods. Not to shame those foods, just here to help people make choices that are self-loving and nourishing. And I think the whole relationship we have to food, it is so fraught these days. 
And so for some of my patients, I find I need to help them recognize that the way they're feeding themselves is either creating inflammation or creating micronutrient deficiency and contributing to their mental health issues. For other patients, they've taken my advice and run with it too far. And then we're dealing with more of a state of what's called orthorexia or sort of this obsessive fixation on eating in the right way. And that's not helping anybody's anxiety. So if you're eating in a way that's kind of as a person I was recently talking to on a podcast, she said, I eat like a teenager. If that's what your relationship to food is right now, see if you can come towards a place where from a place of radical self-love, you're nourishing yourself. But if it's become an obsession, if you're obsessively meal prepping, if you're declining social connection to control what you're feeding yourself, if it's gone too far and it's become counter-therapeutic, and that's where we need to loosen our grip, remind ourselves our bodies are not that fragile, and reclaim a connection to pleasure and ease around our food. You make a nice point in passing where you say, I'm paraphrasing, but one socially relaxed meal in company is going to do you a lot more good than 20 carefully worked out, you know, cleanly eaten, organically sourced meals. And I thought, yeah, that, that is the natural way of eating. Eating is a social thing, or it used to be. I mean, all of this fraught conversation around food, it would be moot if we lived on what I jokingly call Whole30 Island. If what was available to us was paleo template, real foods grown in healthy soil, animals raised with ethical animal husbandry practices, if what was available was good, nourishing, real food, we wouldn't have to overthink this at all. Then social eating would be real food. Eating at home would be real food. Grabbing something quick on the go would be real food. That's not the landscape that we live in. So instead, we need to find a balance. And at least for me, I think of it as like when I'm at home, when it's easy, I eat homemade food. That's never easy, actually. It's still always a lot of work. And I have a lot of tools and strategies for how to make it more realistic. But whenever we have an opportunity to share a meal with people that we love, even if it means breaking all of the Dr. Vora rules, I do think that that community and connection trumps every other recommendation in the book. At the very end of the day, it's hardwired in our DNA. We feel safe when we are grounded and held in community. This pertains to the fact that on this proverbial savanna of evolution, human beings, we were never the fastest. We were not the strongest. We were just the ones that figured out how to cooperate. And for this reason, when we feel connected in community, we feel safe. And when we feel on the outskirts, ostracized for one reason, or just socially isolated in our flat or in our McMansion, we feel unsafe in a subtle, unconscious way. So we always want to prioritize community and connection. You also talk about how you can't get rid of anxiety altogether. And a lot of it you talk about you need to discharge the stress. You make quite a lot of the danger that comes from there are just things in modern life which will make you stressed. You can't, you can't you know, just pull the covers over and, and stay in bed 24 hours a day so that you don't get stressed. And it, a lot of what you talk about are the, the useful practical strategies for how you discharge the stress that is going to impinge on you. Yeah, I mean, there's inevitable stress in modern life. There was inevitable stress in ancient life. That is just existing on this earth. There is inevitable stress. And so much of the book is devoted toward obviating unnecessary stressors. And then we reconcile with the fact that some stress is inevitable. 
So what do we do with that stress? And I take a two-part approach to that. One is that we need a way of discharging that stress. And if you look to the animal kingdom, what you'll see is when you know, an animal of prey has a life or death acute stressor, say they drop into a freeze response. When they come to, they have a uh, shake. That's their way of discharging excess adrenaline. And it seems to be a way that they tell their nervous system the threat has passed and now it's safe to be in my body again. And as socialized human creatures, we have no shortage of the stressors, but we do not have a practice for shaking every time we get a stressful email from our boss or we trip on a staircase. And so I encourage people to find some way on a daily basis to shake off the stressors that we accumulate. And it can look a lot of different ways. Some people like to exercise vigorously. Some people like to chant or sing or journal or make art. You can have a belly laugh. You can have an ugly cry. You can cuddle with somebody or play with a pet or a baby. I personally like to shake and that's my approach. I find it to be very efficient and helpful. So it's so hippy dippy and weird, but I put on shamanic drum music and I shake for about 90 seconds. I do this in between patients to kind of clear and it just goes right to the core. It presses control alt delete on any stress response and it seems to excavate what I keep buried. It excavates stuck emotions that are sort of buried in my connective tissues. And then I can be with that and stay curious about it and often learn from it. And as you say, it, it does have a biochemical basis. It, it does actually flush out the stress chemicals, which otherwise are just sort of circling around saying, well, any second now that the lion's going to jump out. No one's told me the lion's gone away. It's probably still there. We, just, we need to be alert. <laughs> and what you're saying is you've got to get rid of that signal. That's right. And then the second way of handling the fact that stress is inevitable is to have some daily practice that helps put your body into a relaxation response. And the way I think about this, it's like a daily multivitamin that you can take that just puts your nervous system spending a little more time every day in a state of relaxation rather than a state of stress. And I think of it as a threshold effect. Like if we have a threshold and if we tip over it into the stress zone, we're more likely to have a panic attack. We're more likely to feel on edge and that urgent, uncomfortable feeling of fearing the future. And the more relaxation response we put our body in, whether it's through a breathing exercise, meditation, yoga nidra, um, we're basically lowering that threshold or in certain ways raising the threshold to go into the stress territory. And so that's a nice practice. It, it's not something I recommend to do at the point of no return. Like you're in a panic attack and it's like, oh, just do a breathing exercise. It doesn't always work and can often be counter-therapeutic. But to do it prophylactically a little bit every day can help a lot. Talking of um, panic attacks, there's quite a striking bit in the book where you say you in some ways are better to go with it rather than, and this is something that's come up with various authors in, in, in various parts of a broader discussion about mental health, a, a sort of a, a saying various people have said in various ways, as you have, rather than smother them or deny them or try to stuff a pillow over the, this loud voice, which is telling you that you're not happy, you have to, in some ways, um, ride it out. And that's quite yeah. a brave thing to tell someone. Yeah. And, and nobody with anxiety likes hearing that message, but it is what works. And so there's something about anxiety and panic. It's, it's almost somewhat belligerent. And the more we try to strong arm and be rigid with it, it doubles down. And when we surrender to it, 
and drop the resistance and roll with it, it reveals itself to be this discrete process that comes to a climax and resolves on its own. And I find that the more we can actually basically not try to run from it, but to say, okay, this is happening, I'm diving in. And I really encourage my patients to become like an investigative, like a scientist about it, rather than, oh God, oh God, oh God, this is this feeling, I do not like this feeling, exquisitely uncomfortable, I feel like I'm gonna die or go crazy or lose my mind, to instead say, okay, this is a panic attack, I know what this is. This is my body working, not dying, but working. This is me in a stress response. My heart is pumping more strongly, more rapidly. My palms are sweating. This is my body in a stress response. And the more we can see it in that dispassioned way and to kind of understand the physiologic, how things are playing out, it does take out some of the charge. And the more we can surrender into it, anxiety fights us less. And it doesn't need to double down. It just comes to a climax inevitably and resolves. And you also say, uh, which made it, it's, it's what I was saying about the common sense tone of the book. You said, look, one of the worst things about a panic attack is that when it starts, you start panicking about the fact that you're going to have a panic attack. You're panicking about the panic. And in a way, what you didn't say is, but it was clear, is there's, there's enough panic without you adding to it. Just, just, <laughs> just be happy with the panic that's happening. Don't try and, don't try and augment it with your panic about the panic. I, I do this all with the utmost empathy. I also have a brain that spins and overthinks and spirals. And so I've learned firsthand, here's the thing, our brains are meaning makers. That's what they're here to be. If you give us a piece of paper that has two dots and a line, our brain is like, I know what that is. That's a fake. And if you give us the physical sensations of you know, a stress response, if we are sleep deprived and over-caffeinated and underfed, and our body is in a variety of different stress responses, our brain swoops in with a narrative to make sense of the physical sensations. It tells us, oh God, you know what? I'm feeling anxious because of things at work or things in my relationship or things with the state of the world. Or it says, oh God, I'm having a panic attack. This is going to be terrible. I'm never going to escape this sensation. Like I'm really stuck. And the more we can just step one foot to the side and look at our brain and say, oh, I see what you're doing. It is actually really helpful. It takes away some of the power of those stories that we tell ourselves. And it clears a path for us to say, I think I know physiologically what's underlying this stress response. In the book, I create this false mood inventory, which I find to be like, I want people to cut it out of the book and put it on the refrigerator. Because when we're in the throes of peak anxiety, we never have the presence of mind to think, am I actually just hungry? Am I sleep deprived? But it's helpful to have something to cue those questions and tell us, yes, you're feeling super anxious. I almost wish that the inventory said like, I'm sorry, you're feeling this way. Validation, validation. Now let's ask the question, is it possible you didn't get good sleep last night? Is it possible you had an extra cup of coffee today? Is it possible something is going awry with your digestion and a number of other potential causes? Just so we can go through that inventory and think, oh, there is a physical basis for how I'm feeling right now. And it really softens the blow and it gives us a strategy for how to be less anxious. We could carry on talking about that forever because there's a lot more in the book, but we need to move on to true anxiety because again, you, you have your own take on that. As you say, this is your body being used as a, as a sort of a loud hailer for you. It, it's got its own language for saying something deep and true is amiss in your life. And you're not doing anything about it. 
So I'm going to use the stomach to make sure you can't ignore this any longer. And as you say, it's, it's a lovely little bit, which I, I can't find to quote back to you. But as you say, true anxiety starts as a whisper from your body. But if you just steadfastly ignore it, eventually it will raise its voice until you just have to listen. I thought, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So tell us, tell us more about what you mean, because this is the, the, the other kind of anxiety. I like that you bring up that the body uses the stomach. There, those neurons are coming in handy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it does start as a whisper. I mean, most of us, if we got really still and quiet right now, we could tune in and we could hear some whisper from our, our internal compass. And it's telling us, you know, there's this really inconvenient truth about your life and you know it. You like to pretend you don't know it, but you know it. And it feels like you would blow up your life to make good on that. Um, and so we, most of us resist it. Sometimes it does have a way of saying, I'm this, I will not let this continue. Um, I think about people who hate their job and eventually just cannot get out of bed or are not in the right relationship. And eventually their body really shuts down if they're about to be intimate, for example. So our body has a way of coming to a shout, but it behooves us to start listening when it's more at the whisper stage. And here's the thing. It sounds very weighty and lofty and daunting, but I do think that the body our internal knowing, it recognizes that we are here with a unique perspective and a unique contribution to make. My personal worldview, I don't need everyone to be married to that worldview, but I find it to be true in my practice. And it's just here to nudge us and say, no pressure, but you know you're not totally on your path of carrying out that contribution. And can you just be at least moving in the direction of getting to that point? And I really think so many of us need to rehabilitate our relationship to pressure, expectations, perfectionism. We, we carry so much conditioning and fear around, oh God, like, but what if I fail? But what if I'm not good enough? And I want to really take all of that weightiness away from this. Our contribution doesn't have to be lofty. It doesn't have to be grand. It certainly doesn't have to be perfect. We just need to be recognizing that our unique perspective and our gifts, what light us up, it's not an accident and we have something to offer and we feel better when we are making that manifest kind of pertains to the idea of how we're all really artists and we need to create something and it doesn't have to be what other people even like it just has to be our truth made manifest in the world and so i think with true anxiety it more more than anything it just requires that we slow down and get still and listen and then trust that voice and that can be really difficult. Yes. I mean, it's as if your body is saying to you, look, you may be able to lie to yourself, but you're not going to lie to me, matey. <laughs> right. <laughs> and a point which hasn't come up in, in other books that I've read in this area, but you do very strongly, and I thought, ah, this is really good. Lots of books point out that the, the rates of stress and anxiety and depression is much higher among women than it is among men. And they all just say this and then move on. And you go, right, that's terrible. And on we go. But what you just said about true anxiety, that you're not being true to yourself, that you're letting the world say, look, you, you need to be like this, or th that that's much more the way that women have traditionally been brought up. It's the point you make, that women traditionally are so expected more than men, perhaps, to put other people's feelings first and to, to make the compromises. 
And I thought, ah, oh, okay, for the first time, someone's actually pointing to something of why it's much more prevalent. And, and you, you make quite a bit of it in the book in a really helpful way. And you also talk about the biology of periods and menopause, which again, I thought, that's really interesting. Yeah. Do we have an hour? Let's talk about this. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> in two, in two minutes or less. Yeah. Sorry, I, think, I think that there is a lot of conditioning that women are under. And I mean, the world works on the backs of women saying yes and betraying our old needs, our own needs in order to be at service of others. And I think that I really think about the Taoist idea of the yin-yang, that these two facets, the yang principle, that masculine, sun, doing, productivity, energy, lives in perfect balance, dynamic equilibrium, but balance, with the feminine aspect of rest, receptivity, intuition, non-doing. And our culture is obsessed with yang. That's what we value. And we devalue the yin. In fact, when you catch anybody valuing yin, if you look underneath the surface, it's always in service of yang. We say, oh, I want to meditate so that I can be more productive at work. And so it's really just more, you know, it's more yang and yin's clothing. And I think that we actually, as a culture, all of us need to start to value rest and value more feminine principles and then fiercely and unapologetically protect them. And I think in my own life, earlier on, I perceived that this is a world that celebrates the masculine, that celebrates objective reasoning, rationality, not being sensitive or emotional or irrational. So I thought, well, I want to be seen as intelligent. I want to be accepted in the boys club. So I too will be objective and rational. And it took me until my mid thirties to realize that I was silencing an enormous part of how I can navigate the decisions in my life, which is using intuition. And it was a rocky learning curve for me to actually start to honor that voice and to not be embarrassed or ashamed of the fact that I have a not completely rational or objective way of perceiving reality and navigating decisions. And now I just fully embrace it. And it's not that I've discarded the objective. Yeah. And you, you make that point when you talk um, about cognitive behavioral therapy, which of course yeah. is terribly popular. And you, you make the point that the, the, the problem with it is it, it part of its teaching is to be skeptical about emotions. You, should, you shouldn't trust those, you should step back. And there's a lovely sentence on page 210, Feelings aren't facts, but they're not hysterical falsehoods either. They are a form of truth. I thought that was a great sentence. Um, yeah. And yeah. it packs a lot of truth in it. Yeah, I mean, I picked down a bunch of sacred cows, you know, from body positivity and veganism, psych meds, but CBT, I imagine I'm going to get some pushback on this. I yeah. value the principles of CBT. I use them in my practice. I, I use plant-based diets and psych meds in my practice as well, and the principles of body positivity. But I think all of these are overdue for a more nuanced both and conversation. And when it comes to CBT, those principles can be so impactful and helpful, and they can really deny somebody their hard-won sense of reality. And, and I think that when somebody is saying, well, I was in a social situation and I perceived that somebody didn't like me there, CBT will tell you, well, you know, that's, you're, you're jumping to all these conclusions, you're mind reading, you don't know this. And that's fair. We don't factually know this. But maybe as humans, we have this sort of superhuman capacity for picking up on social cues. We're very sophisticated social animals. And I'm not in the business of denying when my patient has a hunch like that. 
we're always going to balance it with objective reasoning, but we're not going to deny it. And I think that sometimes CBT can be a little bit, to me, there's a little bit of a subtle misogyny baked into it, where it says the way that on the margin, a way of thinking that might come more naturally, phenotypically to a male brain is somehow better than what might come phenotypically a little bit more naturally on the margin to a female brain. A lot of caveats there, because of course, you know, all of the recognition of this construct of the gender binary, but I tend to see these patterns play out in my patients. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. If you don't mind, there's quite a lot of questions coming in. Can I put some of them to you? Um, interesting one, Charles says, what is the actual proof for the flight-fight syndrome, please? And how up-to-date is that? Which, of course, you address absolutely in the book. Yeah, proof. Uh, I don't know. I certainly do address some more recent research on the fight or flight response, which is coming out of UCLA, where she started, there's a woman, what is her name, Taylor? Um, and, and her research really shows that there's a third option around the tended befriend response to a stressor. And then of course, everything happening with polyvagal theory is a whole new understanding of how our bodies respond to stress. So I won't be claiming proof of any of this. I think that this is a construct for making sense of how we have different pathways to respond to stress and it's being rethought and re-understood in, in really interesting ways all the time. And I try to touch upon those in the book. Mm. And you also touched on something which was something that I've done some work on as well, where you say a lot of these theories, particularly the flight or fight, a lot of the experiments were done on male rats. I mean, most toxicology, all toxicology is done on male rats. And then it's applied to women, of females of any species, as if, well, it's a, we, we worked on the, the male rat. So, it, you know. The interesting paradox there is that yeah. when they, you know, in the past before it was mandated that there be gender parity in the clinical trials, um, the reason they didn't include women, it was a, there are a number of different reasons, but a main one was because of the cyclical nature of female hormones, they thought it might muddy the data. <laughs> and exactly, you know, exactly like it, it might behave differently at different points in the month. And that's probably something we should understand. It before might we muddy the data we're getting about males and we can't have that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, we have a big problem with that. All right. yeah. An anonymous attendee, if there are neurons in the gut and you have chronic autoimmune gut disease, would you say anxiety is false or true? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> question. All right. We have another hour. So that uh, question sorry. I address directly. I think this is of such central importance in modern life. Autoimmune diseases are at such epidemic proportion right now and false and true. It's both. It is predominantly false-ish in the sense that when you have an autoimmune disease, you are by definition in a state of systemic inflammation. And those circulating inflammatory molecules called cytokines, they cross the blood-brain barrier they're going to impact the threat detection centers in the brain and tell your brain exactly that we are under threat. So it's very hard to feel well and calm when we're in a state of chronic inflammation. 
And I think that given the research we have around ACEs, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and the fact that this can increase our proclivity to developing an autoimmune disease later in life, I think there is a true anxiety component to autoimmune disease where there's an, I, I always have to be really ginger when I touch around this concept, but I think that just that idea of the body attacking itself is a very fundamentally unnerving state to be in. And I think it pertains to messaging we got early in childhood about our worthiness of love. And, um, and so, but there's an enormous false anxiety component to it. And that's where I would start to basically understand that autoimmune disease is not just a destiny. There's so much to be done, but you kind of have to get out of the hallowed halls of conventional medicine, allopathic medicine. It's necessary to work with a functional medicine practitioner or a naturopath who's going to see autoimmune disease as something that can be addressed at the root. Um, it has to do with healing the gut lining, removing things that are inflammatory, removing sources of damage to our tissues, which the immune system circulates and sees as foreign and something to attack. And so there's a lot that can be done to achieve a lot of healing and well-being with autoimmune disease. And we haven't even talked about um, antibiotics and we haven't got time, sadly, but it's an important issue which you touch on the book. All right, Jane, I was interested to hear we are hardwired to feel safe in company and community. How does that apply to those who are shy, antisocial or autistic and so on? Are those people going to miss out on this kind of supportive feeling? Love that question. No, there's no right or wrong way to socialize. If somebody extroverted wants to be at a big party with a lot of people and that's how they get that need met, great for them. If somebody very introverted or shy or neurodivergent wants to hang out one-on-one once in a while, that might scratch that itch for you. And so you get to pick how you like to interact with people. I'm just here to say nothing is not what I recommend. So anything that's not nothing, I think that social connection is a non-negotiable for human happiness, but what it looks like, what feels good to you, all comers are welcome. So I I know for me, I prefer one-on-one in small groups, and I need a lot of introversion recovery time after social interaction, and that's just fine. Short question, but not an easy one from Arnold. Is the question always, what am I going to do about this anxiety? That's a deep philosophical question about the way I approach mental health. It doesn't have to be. I think that if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, I think it touches on something really profound, which is we keep doing this thing of, well, you're anxious. Well, well, obviously we have to play Mr. Fix-It and change that. That's not okay. We don't want you being anxious. And if that is overwhelming or feels invalidating on some level, and you just want to be allowed to exist the way you are, I support that. There's nothing in my mental health philosophy that says you have to engage with this approach to feeling anxious. I think that I'm here for anybody who's like, I'm suffering and I don't want to be suffering anymore. For those folks, I'm here to say the conventional medical world might've told you this was a genetically determined chemical imbalance in destiny. And if you felt like you haven't yet been helped by that model, it feels kind of demoralizing and hopeless. And I'm here to say there's always hope. But if actually engaging and trying to fix anxiety has felt invalidating and stress producing, there's no need to keep engaging. And if you want to stay in that mode, it's okay. And I don't think there's a right or wrong here. Alice, can anxiety cause somatic symptoms like tinglings, burning sensations, and pins and needles in various parts of the body? Yes. And so this is, this is the crux of the book, right? So yes, anxiety absolutely can. Um, but what is anxiety? And <laughs> Sometimes what's happening here is that something else is causing this tingling or what might be called paresthesias. 
There are things like vitamin B12 deficiency, which is especially common with anybody eating more of a vegetarian or vegan diet. Something like anemia can be contributing to this. A variety of micronutrient deficiencies, a variety of chronic low-grade infectious agents like chronic Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr virus. So there's a lot that can be contributing to that kind of sensation. And some of those things are simultaneously contributing to the paresthesias and the anxiety. And then sometimes the paresthesias themselves become a source of anxiety for us and we spiral about the sensations. So I'm here to say I would look first at nutrition and to think about how to make sure your nerves are getting the nutrients they need to function properly. Patricia says, when would you advocate medication for anxiety? Yeah, sometimes. And so, and that's really important here. We, we didn't even really do the whole treatment of psych meds in that conversation. So I'll do the quick primer on that. Basically, if somebody here is helped by psychiatric medication, I am not dogmatically opposed to that. I see that as a victory. Hallelujah. If you've found the path that helps relieve your suffering, this is great. I am in the business of relieving human suffering. That's your path. That's fantastic. If you are someone who has felt like you've been chewed up and spit out by the mental health field as it currently exists, you've tried every med, you've switched, increased the dose, and you're still not finding relief, I know those people. And I know that that can feel really defeating and you can start to feel hopeless. So I am here to loudly proclaim there's reason for hope. That is not the only strategy to finding a place of well-being. And so if you are somebody who, and I think overall the trouble is we just don't have the time for proper informed consent when somebody is being prescribed a medication. We need to understand the efficacy, the potential side effects, what it might be like to one day taper off the medication. This is all important to know upfront before you take that first pill. But if medication is the right path for you and it kind of creates a bridge for you to walk out of a place of feeling stuck and really suffering, getting to a place where you can start to do some diet and lifestyle adjustments more easily, this is great. I think I don't do it so cavalierly because what I find most damning is that for some people, it's really hard to get off of medications. So it's just not my first line treatment. There's also a part of me that really likes an elegant solution. And when somebody comes to me with anxiety, I'm not thinking this is a Lexapro deficiency disorder. You might have a different word for Lexapro, but what we call escitalopram in its generic form. But basically, I'm not thinking about this as a psych med deficiency disorder. I'm thinking, what's causing this anxiety? Is it inflammation? Is it something with the gut? Is it a micronutrient deficiency? Is it chronic sleep deprivation? Is it sleep apnea? And I want to identify the true root cause and address that. And often that obviates the need for medication. And so I just don't see meds as always the most elegant solution, but sometimes they're necessary. And I have no dogmatic stance against that. And you also make quite a lot in the book. You talk about how difficult it is to get off things like diazepine, the, that whole class of chemicals. You, you make the point that that's sometimes more difficult to get off than anything else. And you also make very valuable points about how when people try to tail off these things, generally the medical profession tells them off at an alarmingly precipitous rate. And you, you, you're very clear, if you're going to tail something off, do it really gradually. Yeah. So that could be its own whole book. I call this chapter The Silent Epidemic. But for anybody trying to taper off of psych meds in general, but the benzodiazepine class of anti-anxiety meds in particular 
it is in what I've witnessed the hardest thing to get off of, including illicit substances. And I don't say that to discourage anybody who's in that process or trying to do that. There are ways to get off, but it just needs to be handled with so much care. And the trouble is that psychiatrists, general practitioners, we aren't trained to taper people off properly. And what's worse is that sometimes patients who have been turned away, people aren't, doctors aren't supportive, doctors aren't knowledgeable how to do it. So then patients go, they do it themselves, they go off cold turkey, and then they become symptomatic. And the problem is the physician will then say, well, this was an indication that the medication was working and now you're relapsing. So let's go right back on. And we need to be really careful how you're feeling after getting off of a psych med is not a relapse. It is withdrawal. You might eventually be in a relapse, but we can't speak to that when you're still in a state of very acute psychopharmacologic withdrawal. And so to just recognize that's withdrawal and it requires what's indicated as a different way of supporting what your physiology is going through in that moment. We've just got time for one more question. And my apologies to the there's dozens of people who've written questions. I'm sorry we can't get to them all. Stacy says, does it take a certain amount of emotional intelligence to identify anxiety the way you describe it? And if so, how can I help my teenager with her anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we need to gatekeep the, you know, I think anybody can access it in this way, supporting our children's mental health. I think that I don't want any parent to ever feel intimidated, like that they aren't capable of holding space for that. What really is being asked of us is attunement and validating open-ended statements. So, um, and, and to watch out for what triggers us. So sometimes what happens is our children's moods remind us of a dark place we've been in and we want to make it go away. Or we just are so uncomfortable with the idea of them suffering that we kind of arrive at some relationship that looks sort of like denial or trying to suppress. We want to be available for the full range of how they're feeling. They're having a human experience. It comes with suffering. It comes with anxiety. It comes with dips in their mood. And I think that we can really model for them how to name our feelings and we can help them sometimes, you know, teenagers, sometimes they don't want our help, but we can do our best to model it, help them name their feelings and just show them that there can be a stance of curiosity about how to think about mood. And I think that we talk a lot about false moods in my household. My daughter is six and she can identify when she is in a blood sugar crash induced mood. And so that's the progress we've made thus far here. And I think that alone is so empowering because if I had known that in college or med school, man, would things have been different. So any kind of modeling of how to identify our false mood states can be really empowering. And they just make a really safe space for people to talk about the true moods um, and to make sure that we work on our own triggers on our own time so that we can really attune to what they're going through. Ellen, thank you for talking to us. My apologies to all of the dozens and dozens of people who've written in. I'm sorry we just couldn't get to your questions. Ellen, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for writing the book. I really enjoyed it. David, thank you so much. And thank you, How To Academy. Thank you, everyone, for being here and for your excellent questions. Good night. This episode of the podcast starred Dr. Ellen Vora and was presented by David Malone. The series is produced by Esme Bright and myself. And our editor is John Doughty. On Friday, I'll be talking to one of my favourite writers, John Higgs, about the story of how the Beatles and James Bond simultaneously changed the British psyche. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.